I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everybody. This is President Donald Trump. I want to thank you all for coming out tonight for Trump Cast live in Austin, Texas. Isn't this a great city? What a great city. I love Austin. Love, love, love Austin. Great food. Great tacos. Beautiful tacos. Nothing like the Trump Tower Taco Bowl, though, right? Right? Isn't that the greatest? This whole Russia thing is so annoying. I barely know Paul Manafort. Am I saying his name right? I don't even know if I'm saying his name right. Texas loves walls. You have a great senator. Ted Cruz, is he something else? He uses Twitter a little differently than I do. Hello, and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who last week put the bunga bunga back in unga. Oh, we didn't work that in advance. That's the United Nations General Assembly. (laughs) <laughs> I'm Jacob Weisberg. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I'm Jamel Bowie. <laughs> Extra points to those of you who caught the Berlusconi reference. <laughs> We've got a fantastic show tonight, and I'm just going to give you a little outline of what we're going to do. We're going to do a first segment with just the three of us, and then we have two special guests We're incredibly excited for the second segment. We're going to welcome Congressman Joaquin Castro. And for our third segment, we're going to welcome Jill Abramson, the former editor of the New York Times. And if you guys don't applaud too much, we may have time for a few questions at the end. So we're going to get right into it today. And the first topic is very simply, is Donald Trump a white supremacist? I think you know why I might be asking if anyone's been on Twitter today. He gave a speech in Alabama yesterday, which took on NFL players who have protested the the Pledge of Allegiance. Today, of course, he's been in a Twitter fight uh, with Steph Curry, with LeBron James, who had a pretty good tweet. Yeah. Um, it's like five letters, right? No, six. Uh, six letters. You bum. You bum. Um, but, um, but this has been a huge topic. And, you know, I mean, to get it started, I mean, I think the first thing that we have to establish a little bit in this conversation is the definition of white supremacy. Because there's a traditional definition, and then there's an academic definition that's right. a little different. I mean, I think most people in common usage are referring to an ideology like the ideology of apartheid or Jim Crow, an ideology that says white people are superior and should be in charge of things. But the academic definition, as I've come to understand it, is something more like institutional racism. It's less about what's in people's hearts and more about the systems that oppress minorities and African Americans. So, you know, I I get a little frustrated with the debate because... I'm not sure which white supremacism 
people are talking about. Mm. Right. I mean, I think when, I think when uh, say, Jamel Hill uh, called Trump a white supremacist, she was referring more to the academic definition, which has, like, I think a lot more, like, parlance among sort of people who talk about racism publicly, um, which is that Donald Trump, the policy of Donald Trump are, well, he ran as sort of this white grievance candidate, and then the, his policies are very much geared towards, like, juicing that and, and, and feeding that. And then the people around him, like formerly Steve Bannon, Jeff Sessions in the, in the Department of Justice, sort of all bolstered that as well. So that by, by that definition, he is a white supremacist. I would contend that by our usual kind of common definition of white supremacist being sort of like an extreme racist, that you could like make a case that it applies to Trump, right? This is a guy whose first uh, mention in the New York Times it was because he was being sued for keeping black people out of his buildings. This is a guy who took out full-page ads in New York papers demanding for the execution of the Central Park Five. The were and, innocent. And when, you know, very recently was told, you know, they were innocent, right? He was like, yeah, yeah, we should have executed them. Uh, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is a guy who made his comeback into public life arguing that Barack Obama was sort of was uh, not born in the United States. And his rationale for that was basically that, like, a black guy couldn't be president and, like, be legit. So, you know, if, if I ran into someone on the street, right, who, uh, and for whatever reason, we just started talking about uh, race. This is a weird world I just sketched out. Um, but if, if that were to happen, <laughs> if in, in, this, in this universe, if that were to happen and I ran into a guy... And he was like, yeah, I don't think black people should live in the same buildings as white people. And we should execute black criminals, uh, even if they're, they're actually <laughs> innocent. And, you know, a black guy who is president is obviously like a Muslim who, who cheated his way there. Then and and I'll be, pay you a million dollars if you can prove that he really got good grades in college or right, whatever right. it was. Right, that, yeah. well, like, by, by that alone... <laughs> The conclusion you have to come to is like, oh yeah, this this man I struck up a conversation with is a vicious racist. Right. <laughs> so, but Virginia, I mean, we white supremacism is a is a sort of vogue term right now. Is it just racism? I mean, is it a is it a euphemism? Is it a fancy term? What's the difference? Right, like sometimes it's just a way of saying like fucking racist or like just emphatically whatever. Well, it's actually um, a little, it's a, in a way it's a little euphemistic because it, it's more polarizing to call someone a racist and it's, it's more, somehow feels more personal. I mean, with, if you, if you mm. say white supremacism, it at least carries with it that possibility that you're saying you represent, you're an expression of your society. Right, so to uh, jump, jump into that, this uh, philosopher Charles Mills uh, has a new book out um, that kind of deals with this question. And his analogy is the analogy between, like, he, he says, you should think of the term white supremacist like you think we think of the term patriarchy. Like, it identifies a sort of a system, a kind of relationship, mm-hmm. a set of power relationships. And it's useful for that reason. It's useful precisely because it's, it's more centered on power and relationship and structure than sort of like individual prejudice, not unlike the word sexist. Sexist is very much focused on individual prejudice and behavior. And so when you're, when you're trying to describe a misogynistic society, we reach for patri- patriarchal society because that kind of captures that structural element. And in the same way, 
I think um, white supremacist isn't euphemistic. It very much speaks to the, the systemic thing. The problem, though, is that there's a prior meaning to white supremacist, which really is kind of, you know, emphatic racist. And so it's disentangling the two meanings. I mean, it does, uh, you know, when we try to get scientific and academic, there's an education and intelligence differential that we have to talk about when we're talking about Donald Trump or uh, Anthony Scaramucci, where we can't really bring academic, I mean, they are posturing all the time. They're using language the way wrestlers use it. They're not using language. There are certain kinds of, and Bannon tried to do this, like economic nationalists, would-be white nationalists, that are into the splitting, the hair splitting. And we'll tell you why it's not quite racism, but it does have an idea of civic society grounded in you know, European descent and just the kind of like tedious sophistry that you associate with the high-end racism. But... Um, but but Trump is just all, you know, we know. He's just, like, always saying whatever comes into his head. It's off, usually hostile. It's id-driven, whatever. And um, mostly he has close at hand a set of racist assumptions about the world. Um, you know, to him, as far as sexism goes, most women are evaluated as, like, are they fuckable or not? And most, uh, he doesn't talk much about black women, but most black men are evaluated with, are they going to kill him? Are they mer- criminals? Um, and they need to be deported sort of post-haste. I mean, he doesn't... There are not that many other racist tropes that invigorate him as much as that one. Right. And so what does, he, what does he think at his heart? I mean, I want to tell a quick story about... I worked on a movie years ago about Matthew Shepard, the death of that uh, gay kid in um, Wyoming, and you all may remember that there was like a lot of talk about whether it was a hate crime, like if, if the hate factor could come into the sentencing. Like it doesn't, it's not an additional crime. It was, you know, it was murder. And I talked to a lot of people in Wyoming and they instantly saw this as a question about anti-Wyoming sentiment, right? So it was like, you all hate us because you think we're all homophobic or murderous homophobes. And then the epithets went back and forth of, like, it just reminds me of, like, what are you calling me, racist? What are you calling me? Like, now these words are only constructed to be, like, weapons in a battle, you know? You're, you tell us that, you, you know, that some sons of Wyoming killed this kid because he's gay. Well, we tell you back, you must hate people from Wyoming. And then, you know, and then it becomes this battle of hatred. So, you know, you see, like, Tucker Carlson taking extreme umbrage at the idea that he's, you know, akin to a Nazi because of something he said. Oh, I'm so offended and horrified that you would call me racist. Then you're in another order of discussion about, like, did you say that to me? Did you say that to me? It, like, just seems like playground Kim Jong-un stuff. Um, So I don't know. (laughs) I wouldn't do, um, I wouldn't go to academic, I wouldn't dignify even the way that they talk. I wouldn't put it past Trump to hire hitmen to lynch people, and I wouldn't put it, uh, but I wouldn't dignify it with any idea of the history of white supremacism. I, I doubt he knows, like, what the Turner Diaries are. Or, sure. You know. I mean, but it, I don't think it depends on, like, Trump himself have any, any kind of knowledge about it. I mean, what, what, that's in part what's so interesting about all of this is that Trump... For whatever reason, his personal prejudices, his own history, has intuited that sort of the kind of most uh, effective populist message from the right is uh, racial animus plus like a promise that I'll like pay for your medical bills, right? <laughs> it's 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, which I think, I think the reason why these conversations around is Trump a racist or is Trump white supremacist are so uncomfortable is because if you accept that, if you say yes that he is, then it, it does begin to implicate like sort of white voters writ large. And since Trump won around like sixty percent of white voters, that's another way of saying it begins to implicate white society writ large. And there mm-hmm. you begin to have this conversation about you know what you you can no longer separate say the good white people from the bad ones if everyone is sort of implicated in, in this thing. Um, and so it's easier just to say, you know, that's, out, out, that's outlandish, he's not a Nazi, when the reality, I think, is that it is endemic to politics as practiced by white Americans over the course of this country's history, a preoccupation with preserving racial hierarchy, and that manifests itself in various ways. And Trump has intuited that you can argue that you can you can make that claim explicit and still survive in like political life, but I don't think he yeah. has any like the, he has no like what I just said would just go over his head, right? Like, yeah, yeah. he has no theoretical basis for it, right. but it is significant that he intuited it, that like he looked right. at the political landscape and basically figured out that you could be George Wallace. But but that's that's the question, Jamel, because I think in a way we lack. A sort of category for understanding his relationship to race because what we, previous Republican politics, we had looked very closely for dog whistle politics. Right. Mm-hmm. Politicians who we didn't think were fundamentally or deeply racist but who would use racism as a code to attract southern white voters or, 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 or certain, certain kinds of white voters. And then we assume, well, if you're not that, if you're beyond that, you're David Duke or George Wallace or Strom Thurmond. You're someone who actually believes that stuff. But I don't think that describes quite, uh, I don't think that quite describes Trump either. I think he's someone uh, for whom this is a weird kind of mental wallpaper. In the speech, I, I just watched a little bit of it last night, but when he started talking about the NFL, he said, looking out at this all-white audience, he said, people like yourselves basically should not tolerate this from people like them, right? And I don't think he's even, it's so reflexive, he doesn't even think of that as, a, as, a, as racial categorization. And when he came out, I don't know, you know, Sweet Home Alabama was playing. To him, that's just a song. You know, to me, that's a song about in Birmingham, they love the governor. You know, we don't need Neil Young. Southern man don't need him around much anymore. Or, you know, whatever the, the lyrics are. I mean, there's all of this stuff that is so racially loaded that to anybody who's attuned to it reads like somebody's racist. But he's not Strom Thurmond. He's not, he's not an advocate of segregation. Right. You know, the, I think... Right, he's not cerebral like Strom Thurmond, but he is... I'm sorry, uh, old Strom Thurmond, 1948 right. Strom Thurmond. Okay, yeah. um, or, you know, or George Wallace, or, or, or Jeff Sessions for that matter. Not, it's not like all worked out and all fussed over. And, um, but I think he's, like, he's more like a violent street-level racist. Like, he really did want to get these kids executed. When, you know, I mean, the first few things he did were like, I don't know, like, he's just like down in the fight, like he, his, you know, those early times pieces where he would talk about uh, the Bronx and just, he wanted to build a wall between Manhattan and the Bronx before he wanted to build a wall between the U.S. and Mexico. <laughs> it's amazing. Like he, like mass deportation of Muslims and Mexicans is like where he lives, you know? Um, I mean, I think in a way it's a more virulent strain of racism because I think that there's like violent thinking associated with it. 
And he does talk the same way over time about um, race, unlike about like DACA or the things that he... I mean, he is amazingly consistent on right. his hatred of black men and women. Right? Right, right. <laughs> okay. I, mean, I, I would just... The, the one thing I would add is the, to the extent that you can root any of this anywhere besides like intuition and in that, it's that like Trump does come out of a very specific moment in like American history. It comes out of the late 1960s, early 1970s sort of urban life where like peak white flight, peak sort of like the city as a degraded zone taken over by violent minorities. Like he, that's the milieu he comes out of. And it's really interesting to see, like I always analogize to George Wallace because I'm a Southerner and that's just an easy thing to do. But you can kind of look at Trump as sort of like your, your Frank Rizzo is taken to the logical, mm-hmm. the logical end, sort of like the big city white ethnic mayor who traffics in explicit racism and racial resentment, who is, who is a populist, right? Like who, whose politics are uh, uh, both racist uh, in the sense, you know, I was trying to like figure out a finesse like conservative here, but let's just, his politics are both racist and also sort of not, they're not anti-state though. They're sort of like amenities and welfare and protection for whites and then scorn for everyone else. I think you've got it, Jamal. It's unfrozen caveman Frank Rizzo. Yeah, unfrozen yeah. caveman Frank Rizzo. <laughs> um, I promised our guest that we would dis- finish with this topic before he got here. Oh, I think okay, we're, yeah. <laughs> So for our next segment, I would like to welcome to the stage a congressman from the 20th District of Texas, Joaquin Castro. Um, as many of you know, the um, uh, congressman has a uh, identical twin brother, Julian Castro. I always forget, Joaquin, are, are you the smart one or the handsome one? He's the uglier one. <laughs> yeah, I'm the better looking. <laughs> you, <laughs> you can't have both. Um, uh, just touching on the news of the, the week, how much do we love John McCain lately? Oh, yeah, that was incredible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, and, you know, and I got to admit, I was worried because Lindsey Graham, I think, is his best friend in the Senate. And, I mean, in addition to bucking the president and your party, to be able to say no to your best friend in the Senate was incredible. But I think he did the right thing, and so many people are grateful. Can I ask you a question? Because you know how these things work. It's about McCain and Graham. So two different people have proposed to me that it's a house of cards slash veep play. But (laughs) McCain and Graham were just like, okay, you're going to come out at the end and turn this down because I don't want the bill. To, nobody wants this crazy bill to pass, especially me, says Lindsey Graham. Well, it worked well. Uh, if that's what right. they were doing, they did a good job. Because so, I yeah. think they put friendship before country, before party. That's my order for them. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's got cover. Who needs it? Exactly. Yeah. 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 What's, should we still be worried about this bill passing? I mean, is there still... I, I, I know you don't want to tell any, everyone to relax because then, you know, you want to diminish whatever risk there is, but really, are you still worried it could pass? Yeah, I, I absolutely think that, you know, think about it. You've got a majority right now in the Congress that is intent on doing away with the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. So, yeah, I would be surprised, number one, if it doesn't come up again, if there isn't another serious attempt. And, you know, we got to remain vigilant because you still got until January of 2019, and we've got to win the 2018 elections and change the majority in mm-hmm. Congress, right? But, yeah. So I, I don't think you're out of the woods until the, the next Congress comes in. 
Um, so again, a topic we talk a lot about on Trumpcast is impeachment. We're really interested in both the <laughs> all the easy stuff. Yeah, and yeah we're interested in impeachment, but we take a very scholarly approach to it. We do. Uh, we have, we have, we usually only talk to Harvard Law School professors about it. We're going to make an exception for you because you're on the Intelligence Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, but um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the politics of impeachment because you'll be running for election, not particularly contested, but you know every every member is up, all the Democratic members are going to be up, and I wonder whether there is going to be really meaningful pressure on the Democrats in the primaries, in the primaries. to come yeah. out to say, what the, say whether they'd impeach Trump, assuming it doesn't happen before the election. Yeah, that's a great question. I think there will be some, uh, especially in very contested primaries, uh, but I think people also understand that you know, Democrats right now are in the minority in the Congress, so even if every single Democrat said, yes, I want to impeach the president right now, you still wouldn't have the votes to do it, right? Uh, and so that means that you've got to be able to convince or a, a, a significant number of Republicans have to be convinced to go down that road also. So I guess for me, I think what would trigger uh, the opportunity for impeachment down the road? Uh, I've said very clearly, for example, that if it comes back that the president purposely fired Jim Comey for the intention of, of blocking the Russia investigation, then that would be a time to start with the Articles of Impeachment. Yeah. Uh, if that comes back and, and it's confirmed. And, and I mean, I mean, why not? Why not I'm sorry, I'll, go, I'll give it to you in a second, Jamal, but why do we have to wait for that? I mean, the, the obstruction case seems pretty strong. Yeah, and then on, people say, well, he said that on 60 Minutes. Say, yeah. Yeah. He told Lester Holt. He admitted it to Lester Holt. And, yeah. you know, there, there's a little term in the Constitution about foreign emoluments. And an emolument, although it's a funny old word, is any payment at all. Right. And it's taking, you know, having people stay in his hotels and join his golf clubs. Well, I and mean, you know Lawrence Tribe has been working on that a lot. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lawsuit, obviously, uh, to pursue that angle. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I think you see things moving on a, forward on a lot of fronts. Uh, Representative Green from Houston and representative in California actually filed uh, the first step towards impeachment in the House. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, right now, unless you can convince a number of Republicans to actually go for it, uh, it's not going to happen, right? I mean, that's just the political reality of where we are. And so if you think about the big difference between now and Watergate, during Watergate, the opposite party of the president controlled the Congress. Democrats control the Congress. Here, the president's party is in control of Congress. That makes it much more difficult. Does impeachment come down to one vote that could be control of the House? I mean, if the Democrats win control by one vote, do they go ahead with articles of impeachment? I mean, depending on the findings, yeah. I mean, it depends. Uh, uh, but basically, that's, what, that's partly what I think Robert Mueller is looking into and the House and Senate investigations, Intelligence Committee investigations, are looking into um, and whether you're going to be able to substantiate some of these things. What would convince you that Comey was fired Comey was fired as an act of, to obstruct the investigation that you weren't convinced of in Lester Holt's Already, interview. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I suspect that we're going to find either a paper trail or an electronic trail that describes exactly what happened. Oh, and I yeah. think that's what you see Mueller pursuing right now. That's intriguing. Yeah. It is. <laughs> you know, he knows a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I can't say a lot of stuff, right? <laughs> I'll get in trouble. Yeah. So with, with Watergate, although not every, a majority of Republicans still oppose impeachment, there's still the sense that 
this kind of bipartisan sense that President Nixon had violated some his sacred oath and thus impeachment was appropriate. And do you think that in the current circumstance, even if impeachment is totally justified by the president's actions, that things are so polarized that if it were to move forward, it wouldn't be perceived as Democrats saying, the president violated this thing, we have to do something about it. It would just be perceived as, oh, the Democrats just want to get rid of the president. I mean, that's, that really is a $64,000 question, mm-hmm. right? Is what would move the Republican majority to actually turn on the president and pursue impeachment. And I was at Politicon a few weeks ago, I guess about a month ago, six weeks ago in L.A., and I'm told that Roger Stone actually made a good point. Uh, (laughs) If those of you that know who Roger Stone is, right? But this was his point. During Watergate, Americans were basically watching three networks to get their news. They were watching ABC, CBS, NBC. Now, you basically have this polarization where conservatives are often watching Fox News or they're reading Breitbart or the Daily Caller or Daily Signal or some other conservative news source that is not playing the story the same way that even a CBS or an ABC or an NBC does. So people are getting very different perspectives from their news outlets, which obviously affects how they perceive this political situation. And so I think that's, that's a fair point, and I think that accounts for some of it also. And remember, gerrymandering has gotten so bad that many of our representatives, including many of our Republican representatives, are in such heavily Republican districts that they're really, all they've got to do is win their primary base to win re-election, especially in the House. Mm. And so if the primary, if the base voters don't turn on the president, and if the base voters feel like you've turned on the president, and so now mm. they're going to turn against you, then you're putting your own career on the line. And you know, obviously for some people, that's just not as far, they're just not going to go that far. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Texas politics. Uh, you know, you and your brother are seen as kind of representing in a lot of ways the hope that Texas could again one day be a democratic state. Um, but, uh, applause for applause. Um, but uh, partly, you know, because you're, you're bright young guys who make politics seem appealing, but partly because of changing demographics and the, and the growing power of Latinos in Texas. How long is it going to take? Is it, is it happening and just a little more? It's happening now. It's Why happening is it taking now. so long? Uh, <laughs> I think it is happening. I think that it's going to be, you know, I think we've got a shot in 2018. I actually think that our statewide candidates have a fighting chance of winning. Uh, Hillary Clinton outperformed Barack Obama even in Texas. Uh, She only lost by nine points, which was closer, I think, than Iowa and almost as close as Ohio, which are considered swing states. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you one county as an example. In Harris County, our largest county in the state, uh, Barack Obama in 2012, I think, barely won Harris County over Mitt Romney. Uh, Hillary Clinton carried the county by about 150,000 votes. Mm -hmm. So you can see the progress that's Mm -hmm. coming in Texas. But, you know, Texas is, I mean, historically, politically, even though it's got similar demographics to California, politically, it's come up in a fairly different way. I mean, if I take off, if I just put on my political analyst hat for a second, people sometimes ask, why is California so blue and Texas so red, even though demographically they're fairly similar? You know, you think about the big drivers and industries in California that drive uh, a lot of the politics there. You've got the tech community, which is either liberal or libertarian. Uh, You've got Hollywood, obviously a major industry that's fairly liberal. Uh, You have much stronger unions in California than you do in Texas. 
Uh, in Texas, you have the oil and gas industry, which is fairly conservative. Many folks, a, a big military presence here, which tends to be more conservative. Uh, even when Texas was controlled by Democrats, it tended to be more conservative Democrats. So in many ways, a lot of the folks who became, a lot of folks who were Democrats at one point never really changed ideology. They were always conservative. They just changed party title. Mm. They just went from Democrat to Republican. Uh, and so that's what, that's part of the reason that I think that it's taken a bit longer. If Latinos voted at the rate that Anglos voted, you'd be you'd be pretty close to where. Oh yeah. No, if 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 Latinos in Texas voted at the same rate as Latinos in California, this would already be a swing state. Hmm. Yeah, there is a marked decrease between the voting patterns of Latinos in California versus Latinos in Texas. Why yeah. do you think? A uh, part of it, I think, part of it is that you know I mentioned some of that democratic infrastructure is not here to get the vote out. Uh, and then also, you know, I saw, you see it after every major presidential election, but after 2012, I remember looking at an analysis of Latino voters and how many times or what percentage were asked to go out and vote for a candidate in the 2012 elections. And in Colorado, I think it was like something like 60-something percent. And in Texas, it was like 20-something percent. Hmm. I mean, this state is so vast and huge, hmm. you know, 20 different media markets, uh, that it takes a lot of organizing to really, you know, turn this ship around. And right now in Texas, although it's getting better, we've got great groups, well, Battleground Texas, TOP, which is Texas Organizing Project, Mi Familia Vota, other groups that are working on Southwest voter registration, working on registering and mobilizing people. I mean, this is a huge state. And so we still don't have a statewide infrastructure that is going out not just to the big cities, but also to, to midsize and smaller places to actually encourage people to go vote. Uh, some people who know more about Texas politics than I do think that Democrats would have a chance at beating Greg Abbott and taking the governor's mansion if the candidate were you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really what we're doing here tonight. <laughs> it's a recruiting call. Yeah. Not to put you thanks on the for, spot. Thanks for putting Joaquin, me on the spot. But, yeah. but, uh, now I got to say no to all these well, Texans. Why not, why, not? why not? Why not do it? You know... I, it's different. Well, I looked at the race with Cruz, for example, uh, the Senate race. Uh, we did some polling on that. We, we did everything. And, you know, I just felt like in the end, it wasn't one single thing, but a combination of things. Uh, first, I, like, I actually like what I'm doing in the House of Representatives. I like representing San Antonio. I'm only in my third term there. Um, also, in terms of my family, I have very young kids. My wife and I have uh, a 19-month-old son and a daughter who's not quite four yet. You know, and so... Uh, it was not. It was. It was those things and other things. Uh, I'm doing great work in the intelligence field and foreign affairs, uh, and I also think that you know I can be helpful the way I have been for several years now to candidates. I think I've since I got into Congress, I think I've given away about a million dollars in contributions to different candidates, mm -hmm. including hundreds of thousands of dollars to Texas candidates. You know, so I can, I'm still trying to be helpful in organizing and getting people registered and getting people out to vote. Um, but, uh, you know, I promise at some point I will run statewide in Texas. So you're never going to run. No. Well, because whenever, whenever I talk to Evan Smith or any of these guys, they say, are you ever really going to run for anything else? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I would like to. You don't point. even have a gray hair. Like, yeah. you're like, you got, right. you got some time. Right yeah. 
Also, if, if I could just put in a request, I mean, yeah. your family comes first, but I'd like you to stay where you are on the Intelligence Committee just yeah. because we've got a big yeah. project, and I know Texas yeah. needs you. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think I can be pretty helpful there. <laughs> Are you, are you doing any work in Texas in trying to do something about the state's just ridiculous gerrymandering? Because so much, you yeah. know, there's so much focus on, on statewide, on running statewide, but the first step towards having any kind of infrastructure is actually being able to elect candidates uh, in fairly drawn districts. So. No, you're right. I mean, that is the most pernicious thing. I don't think any politician should be drawing political districts anymore. Nobody should be drawing political districts anymore. Um, you know, in, in a bipartisan way, I support what Arnold Schwarzenegger is doing out of California. Uh, what Isn't that a crazy doing. sentence, by the way? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, we've got we've to get rid of this, this system where politicians are basically drawing political districts. We have to move to an independent or bipartisan commission that's allowing citizens to draw those districts. But you're right, that's been a big problem. There is a silver lining to all this, this in, for 2018. I'm told, at least, that there is a Democrat running in every single congressional district in Texas next year, which is remarkable. Wow. Um, uh, my, my colleague and fellow San Antonio, Lamar Smith, represents a district that goes from San Antonio up to Austin. Maybe some of you live in the district there. But that is... That's been a, <laughs> Lamar's got some fans here, I can tell. Uh, that is a solidly Republican district, and there are like seven Democrats that are running in that primary, huh. right? So there is just a lot of energy in many of these races. Is DACA going to be a voting issue? Is the wall going to be a voting issue? I mean, it's amazing. I, you know, I remember I covered George W. Bush. I remember when he was sworn in as governor yeah. of Texas, he invited all the Mexican governors of the, board, the states, right. the Mexican states on the border, to his inauguration. He got a substantial share of the Latino vote. Yeah, he did. He thought, he thought Republicans should try to win Hispanics. Yeah. Now, obviously, the situation is totally polarized in the other direction. Is, is, are those issues going to get Latinos to the polls? I hope it's a big issue. I believe it'll be a big issue. I do think that it's motivated a lot of people to come out and vote. You know, what you mentioned, Jacob, is really important when you ask about why we compare Texas and California. I was a student in California in 1994 when Pete Wilson was running for governor and Prop 187 was on the ballot, and he ran those commercials that said they keep coming, and they showed the grainy footage of people crossing the border, and he basically made his candidacy off of fear-mongering towards immigrants. And destroyed and, the Republican Party in California. right, right. Yeah. But, but back then... George W. Bush said that Prop 187 was not the right approach for Texas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, fast forward several years later, in Arizona, uh, Sheriff Arpaio and Jan Brewer, the governor at the time, uh, helped pass SB 1070, which was kind of like Prop 187. So the Texas Republican Party had been, had willfully stayed clear of a lot of those ugly politics of those kinds of bills. But in this last legislative session, they went down that ugly road and passed SB 4. Uh, and so you can see them now going down that same path. I do think, just as it took time in California for the effects of that to crest, that it's the same thing in Texas. But I do think in many ways they've given up you know, the mantle that George W. Bush carried back then, that that was not the Texas way. Uh, well, Congressman, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, guys. Please. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Congressman Joaquin Castro. 
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Our cup overfloweth. We usually only have one guest, but tonight we're lucky enough to have two. And our next guest is the journalist and author and former editor of the New York Times, Jill Abramson. Jill, come on out. Jill, I feel a little bad introducing you as the former editor of the New York Times. It seems so backward-looking. Um, it seems fine to me. <laughs> <laughs> you're good. If you're good with it, we're okay. Yeah. Everyone here who's bumped into me has told me I look younger and relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, they never say that to me. <laughs> um, but I, think for, I think Virginia was going to kind of take I the do. lead here. I've been so talking too you much. Are my, you're always the editor of the New York Times to me because you were my boss um, and my last boss there before I left, and then you left. So we've put that behind us. Um, and since we've put it... So diplomatic. I was... <laughs> Fire. I didn't leave. Well, I took a buyout at the encouragement of other Uh people, so I don't know. There are lots of shades at the New York Times of how you leave the Times. But um, maybe now that we aren't there anymore, let's talk about them, right? Okay, Now that we're behind their backs, right? Um, What what happened in 2016? You're just a reader now. No, I'm not. I've been a a political columnist for The Guardian. I just mean you're a reader of The New York Times. Oh, yeah. What happened with the coverage of the campaigns with them in your view? I mean, you know they've come under a lot of criticism, obviously. Hillary thinks that they... Right. uh, I I, I think that that Hillary in, in what happened is completely wrong in her belief that the news editors at the Times had a vendetta against her, that they had it in for her going back to Whitewater. It's just, it, it, it's not true. I mean, I, I directed the political coverage of the Times from 2000 to 2014. And, you know, the Times is filled with people who, in their hearts and probably pulling the, the levers to vote, admire and, and support her. Uh, it's just, you know, the, the, the Times has scrutinized the Clintons for um, their fundraising over the years, which is a completely legitimate area of investigation and inquiry and is part of holding powerful people accountable. I I understand that they don't like that, but the idea that um, the news side of the Times was stacked against her and plotting for her downfall is just, it's it's ridiculous well, that's and a, false. Yeah, that's a little bit of a red herring, right? I mean, forget the vendetta. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think that. I, that's not, but here's what she, I wrote well, down. you know, James Fallows has written that. Well, but here's, know, all right, so here's blank. her quote from her book. She says, and she's talking about, the, I think, the political media generally here, not just the New York Times. But she but talks the, about yeah. the Times very specifically but and pointedly. Let's talk about the general critique. 
where what she says is the political media can't bear to face their own role in helping to elect Trump. That is a strong declarative statement, which is not just about the New York Times. It doesn't allege any kind of vendetta or conspiracy, but it says that the political media didn't handle the campaign well and that they have some responsibility. They're not facing up to it. What do you think of that critique? Well, you know, I think parts of it are right. I think that um, the live coverage of his rallies and speeches uh, unfiltered, allowing him to come on all the, you know, Sunday public affairs talk shows by telephone where, you know, you don't know who's feeding him answers, although, you know, he, he's famous for off the cuff, but, you know, that, that, that was wrong, and she was certainly not afforded that kind of uh, opportunity. Uh, you know, I think that, that the obsession with the email story was overblown, I do. That's the, isn't that the core of the critique? That's, and that's the core of her critique of the New York Times in yeah, particular. Yeah, it's the core of yeah. her critique of the New York Times. I don't think it's the core of her critique of the press. I think she's talking about the fact that as a business proposition to, you know, every news organization could not get enough of Donald Trump. He mm. was clickbait times a thousand. And... That made money for news organizations, too. It helped them grow their audience, attract more um, advertising, et cetera, et cetera. And it's still true. So to that degree, I don't think there's been a whole lot of self-reflection because, you know, the... it, it, too much money is on the table. Mm. I, I really do think that. I feel like a lot of the media went from denying it to casually acknowledging it without kind of dealing with it very much. I mean, now if you ask Jeff Zucker at CNN, he'll say, yeah, we really, we really overcovered Trump back in the primaries. But it's just sort of like... Well, it's because they continue to be all Donald Trump all the time. Yeah. So yeah. how, you know, it would be hypocritical, really, uh, but let's go into the email thing a little more. So I, yeah. I, I totally agree with you about the general over disproportion of coverage. But about the email thing is something that does apply to the New York Times. Yeah. And not to make you answer for the New York Times and coverage you were not directing at that point. But you were, as you say, covering this for The Guardian. I mean, did you think before the election that the New York Times, among others, uh, was over covering that? The email yeah. issue? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And why do you think they did it? Well, they broke the story in the first place. It was their scoop, and they had very good sources on it. And there was a criminal investigation into, you know, whether she had uh, mishandled uh, highly classified information, you know, on her private server. So in that sense, it's a, you know, it's a big deal when there's a criminal investigation hanging over the head of the 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 candidate who seems the most likely to become president. So it was a legitimate story. I just think, you know, day after day, the the big blowing out of the story, even for, you know, developments that didn't seem to merit 
so much play that that's where I had issue. Not that that the subject itself was a trivial one, because the whole time that Comey's investigation was going on, it was you know a serious problem for her, and you know we didn't the public didn't know whether she would face charges or not. You think there was an extent to which everyone, because everyone assumed that she was going to win, yeah. there was no serious scrutiny of those sort of covert decisions, sort of a, well, she's going to be president anyway, so we might as well just, like, you know, be sure to be as, be as critical as we can right now and not let her off the hook. Yeah, I think more, I think that's a great point, but I think what that governed more than Clinton's coverage is too little scrutiny of Donald Trump, mm. so that there was a disproportionate amount of investigative reporting and firepower directed at her and not him because most people thought he's not going to win. Right. So like Clinton's yeah. covered, I mean, um, co- covered almost like an incumbent, whereas Trump is covered like he's some guy. Well, <laughs> he was covered as, you know, en- entertainment in many yeah. ways. Uh, there was some good investigative reporting done on him, uh, Good work was done on Paul Manafort and his business ties to Putin allies. But, you know, it was nothing like the sort of um, full-body scan that Hillary Clinton got. I mean, it was even a little worse than that, wasn't it? Because flip side of the emails is the way that I think the Times in in particular towards the end downplayed the significance of the Russia story. I mean, there was that headline a few days before the election. It was attributed to the FBI. That said but, that they discounted yes. ties. Yeah. Yes. To, I, I think that's a, a problematic story. Uh, I think there wasn't much good Russia coverage done before the election. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Frank Four had the interesting article about the Alpha Bank. That was that, that was the hard. The rest of the media attacked it. I mean, we ran parse. that in Slate, and yeah. almost everywhere else, it was discounted and dismissed, and now basically has been vindicated. Yes, yeah. my darling. Yes, yeah. I had a great, great gut to run that story. I mean, we're, but, no, but I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, but I think it. it I, I'm not sure I even now fully understand the dynamic, but. There's a little bit of, you said that, you know, the emails was the time scoop, and that was one of the reasons it got so much emphasis. The inverse of that is the sort of not invented here or not discovered here when it's someone else's story. Right, you but give it let, less let's be kind of real in the sense that Comey, and Hillary Clinton gets this, this is in her book too, mm. Comey was not, and the, the FBI were not leaking about the Russia investigation. They were keeping it close, uh, not, you know, wanting anything in public uh, published about it or known about it. And, you know, um, Clinton also faults President Obama for not shining a spotlight on the fact that there was an active investigation of Russia's meddling in the campaign and possible ties to, to Trump. I mean, this, this is why I really think so much of the, the problem, not just with the press, but kind of across institutions, was a general assumption that Hillary Clinton would be president. And so that means Barack Obama says to himself, 
it's why not, have the yeah, grief? Right. Why, yeah. why have the grief? Why why spark why the fight? Waves? Yeah. Uh, James Comey says, you know, mm-hmm. if I release this information, it's not going to be that big of a deal because she's going to win anyway. Everyone makes decisions acting as if she's going to win. But <laughs> it turns right. out that making those decisions lower the odds of her winning. Um, and so you have, you know, the, the outcome we Absolutely have. Absolutely true. Something else I want to ask you about, although it relates to this. We are members of a profession that has become catastrophically mm-hmm. unpopular. Oh, uh, yeah. Journalists are distrusted at a level that goes way beyond the decline in trust in journalism has been much more dramatic than the broader decline in trust that has affected all kinds of other Yeah, but it's been declining steeply for quite a long time. More, it's more, not a 2016 No, no, absolutely, right. absolutely. What do you think is driving this, and what do you think we in the profession can do about it, should be doing about it? You know, I think one thing that's driving it is polarization generally in the country, which is also reflected in the architecture of the news media right now, where there is a right-wing media edifice and a middle-to-left media edifice, and that people are drawn and want to read news that confirms what they already believe. Uh, And so we have a situation where there's really no agreement anymore on what the facts are. There's no trust that reporters actually dig into stories to find the truth. Uh, The belief is that they're just parroting an agenda of some kind. And, you know, but it's... It's related to, you know, a breakdown of discourse and information flow in the the country broadly. It's not just the news media. What's your approach to it? What do you you think journalists can do? You know, my approach is do the work. That's always been my approach. It's like the truth hurts, go after the facts, you know, investigate, investigate, investigate. The weight of evidence that a reporter collects should lead to something approaching the real truth and keep doing the stories. What else can we do? I I see, you know, accountability journalism and investigative journalism as the only, one of the only bulwarks we have. against this sea of fake everything. Hmm. One thing that um, seems odd to me about the charge of fake news, or the reflexive charge of fake news, is that um, when I have a story of mine that someone said, oh, it's all, it's all lies, I um, am happy when I don't have to, if I don't have to issue a correction, then I... Like, if it doesn't merit a correction the criticism, then I stand behind it. One thing that seems interesting to me is for the number of times the Trump administration has said uh, fake news, they've only ever gotten, as to my knowledge at least at the times, one correction. Sean Spicer pointed out that he hadn't grown up in, he'd grown up in Rhode Island but wasn't born in New England, and they issued a very nice formal correction. If this is fake news, we have a wonderful way of correcting it, or at least uh, at, the, at the times, uh, they, you know, uh, very quickly, corrections can be issued, and I'm just not sure that anyone is reading 
Like, the fake news charge is just like, you're, uh, this is Manchester United, like, and I'm Arsenal. You know, it, this is, it, it's not a conversation about truth and lies. It's just, uh, or, and certainly not about facts or, you know, made-up facts, or they'd be running tons of corrections. I think they've had fewer corrections on, the, on their political coverage than in any other year because they're so trying to throw off the idea of, uh, you know, that it's fake. And on top of that, I don't think more... Tra- I'm not sure more public editors and transparency would help because well, the correction... You, you mechanisms- agree with Joe. You think it's... I yeah. think the correction mechanisms are a perfect kind of self-scrutiny and, they, you know, the correction desk is like the Maytag repairman right now. Like, they can't... They're just like, you keep telling us we're full of shit and there's not one well, thing. We, we didn't get the, mat- the cover we, of the quilt wrong. Yeah, I, that, that, those are great great points all Virginia and I also think again I was talking about disproportion that I mean the 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 times what like two months ago ran this amazing catalog of Trump's lies that were scrupulously fact-checked it was completely persuasive I'm sure there were no corrections and I mean, so, they fa- right? They fact so check to be sure. You know, a, a president and political figure who openly just lies almost every day mm-hmm. to you know a, a news organizations that are trying their best to get at the truth, and you know, the truth hurts, which is why uh, Trump is trying to delegitimize. Uh, the role of um, reporters in, in society. So I want to, I want to, yeah. uh, I guess, like maybe ch- challenge the premise of this whole conversation a little bit, which is that: Do you think the president doesn't lie? President, come on, that would be No, it's he's not. the most honest president <laughs> that's <laughs> ever been. Yeah. yeah. So there's this there's this great book, uh, "There Goes Our Everything" about white oh, southerners. Yeah. I, um, uh, during the civil rights period. And what's striking about that book is there are passages where uh, Jason Sokol, the author, is quoting from newspapers in the South at the time. And you read uh, letters or snippets of letters of basically white Southerners calling you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, sort of civil rights coverage, the equivalent of fake news. Like, it's not real. It's not happening. Um, this is overstated. This is so on and so forth. And you, you look at sort of the, the structure of American media over time, and it's not actually clear to me that there's ever been any particular trust in journalists in the oh, media. but I yeah. don't want to interrupt. No, no, no. Keep, no keep I mean, it's, it's clear that there's been a decline in trust overall, but I'm not sure what that means practically in, like, everyday life for people. See, I mean, I think that, you know, back in civil rights days, what was so different is the news media wasn't atomized the way it is now. There were three networks, no cable. Uh, Everyone had their main newspapers in their cities and towns. And then there there was the Times and the Wall Street Journal. And so there was a common set of information sources back then. And I think without the coverage of reporters who came, you know, from other parts of the country and showed the pictures and the footage of what was going on in the South, you wouldn't have had public opinion turn so much in favor of civil rights legislation. I think that the the news media 
was trusted way more, and it was much more powerful because um, these uh, news organizations and networks had very profitable monopolies. I mean, there's no better business to be in than a newspaper where you own the printing presses and had a monopoly on all of the advertising wherever you published. But so it was a different world. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a different world, but I, I, I feel like there's an elision there between sort of the footage and the, the coverage and the notion that journalists were, like, especially trusted, right? Like, so right now, in present day, uh, it, was, it was in March or in April when the CBO put out the score for the American Health Care Act, and there are all these headlines across the country, 24 million people losing coverage, and that, that turned the broad public against the bill. People saw the information, and regardless of their personal trust or distrust for the media, they took it in as being true and acted accordingly. And you see something similar with kind of conversations or public opinion around police violence, that like the existence of that footage reported and shown uh, in all kinds of media has actually moved the American public towards thinking police violence is a problem. Now, it doesn't imply anything about solutions, but it's changed public opinion despite the fact of this mistrust. And so I guess my question, and I have no quantitative data to prove this, but it's just I'm not, like, can we really be certain that... There, that the change in trust in journalism um, means anything for how people intake coverage. Hmm. No. You know, <laughs> you, know, you know what's really what, I, what, I, what really interests me is where did the where did the um, the sort of unusual internet-y voice show up pre-internet? The I mean the Breitbart the the actual fake news the Pizzagate stuff. And the idea that it showed up in, the le- in letters to the editors in regional newspapers is really interesting. And one thing you might speak to, because you ran political coverage from 2000 to, to 2014 um, and, have, and, you know, and have been in newspapers your whole career, you saw that transition to the Internet. And one of the things that I think was like very heartbreaking to a lot of journalists, and this is now 10 years ago, was comments. What's what? Comments. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time that I started to see, you know, you'd write a story... And you'd, you know, write it about something completely different. And then it would be read under the line, like literally in some kind of id place, as though all you were saying, for instance, I wrote a story about George Bush talking to a hot mic, just he accidentally said something into a mic. And I wanted to talk about microphones and technology. And so the whole piece was about microphones and hot mics and the history of hot mics and microphones and how microphones work. Every single comment was, you're another liberal who hates George Bush. I mean, there was nothing in the piece. I mean, he could have been, you know, he could have been Beyonce. But you were writing it in the time, right. which is why they absorbed it. And so way. then I was like, oh, there's this whole other voice. And by the way, same typeface. They're included with my article. They're like the other voice. And I ended up scrutinizing my own motives a little bit because they would say like, oh, you just wanted to say something bad about George Bush. And maybe I did, <laughs> you know, they knew me better than I, they were like a therapist, when you know, you get, they're just like, you care about microphones. Uh, yeah, we know you. There is um, some point around comment 200 when you start to think, did am I, I crazy? Or yes, I, <laughs> totally, no, I, totally. Um, but do you remember like when reporters first started getting comments um, uh, along the lines of, all I want to say is the New York Times is a, you know, neoliberal corporate shell, and 
1927, I think. That's <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, we're on Israel or whatever. Like, well, they take any, I, any I mean, I- Israel was always a subject that brought an avalanche of reaction on both sides. Yeah. So. Fortunately, Jared Kushner has brokered a, a great peace <laughs> in the region, so we don't have to worry about that anymore. Right. But, um, but was so they, as long as you were at the Times, people were saying somewhere, maybe in the comments, the Times is fake news or protesting it or saying it's a Zionist rag or yeah, right. I mean, liberal rag has been out there for quite a while, probably you know, going to the beginning of the web, at least. And that's not engaging with the specific Mm -hmm. stories. That doesn't engage with the specific stories. Well, it's a reflection, too, of the fact that the Times has had a a liberal editorial page and largely liberal op-ed page. And so the institutional voice, opinion-wise, is liberal. And then the whole, you know paper is seen as such. Yeah. i got to draw a curtain on this discussion, but Jill, can you hang around and answer a few audience questions yeah, with us? Yeah, sure. Great. Um, so um, we're going to take a few questions, um, maybe line up on, on either side and make sure that your question is a question and that it's brief, and we'll try to get as many in as possible. But I, while, will, I will cut you off. Yeah, yeah. I will do it. <laughs> we'll all cut you off. But while we do that, we're going to do a quick lightning round while you, go, you guys think of your questions and line up. I'm just going to ask for a couple fun predictions. I'm going to start with you, Jamel. Okay. Um, tomorrow, uh, game day, NFL. Uh, I think there are going to be some players who are going to take the knee, as the expression goes, during the Pledge of Allegiance. How many? I don't, I don't have a uh, particular... How many will take the knee? Yeah, I don't yeah. have a numerical okay. guess, but I, I have a feeling it's going to be like a huge number um, of players are going to... It's, it's not even... It's not even necessarily because I think they'll all agree with Kaepernick, but that President Trump's just sort of attack on the players, mm. an attack on the players as if they were like vassals of some feudal state mm. and not as like autonomous people who have made choices and who have, have skills and earned their place, is just like offensive to a lot of players. Mm. Um, and that will drive uh, the action. I have no idea how many of them actually agree with Kaepernick, but I think they're all kind of pissed off at just the way uh, uh, President Trump spoke about the players. And just the incredible... Even the owners don't like being pushed right. around by Trump. Right. They're not going to react to it right. the way they would have reacted to it. Yeah. Um, right, so standing for the pledge is like standing for Trump. Like, in, in other words, I'm not going <laughs> to bow down to you. Right, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Um, um, Virginia, here's yours. Okay. Will Paul Manafort be the first oh God, person <laughs> indicted in the Russian investigation? And if so, when? I um, just opened a Google Doc, and I started to call it Manafort 3, and then I realized Manafort 3 was already taken, and so was Manafort 4. I have five Google Docs called Manafort. What, what's um, in these Google Docs? It, like, every time we do a show on it. Okay. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, it's, it's, it, my suffering is nothing like anyone else's, but the fact that Carter Page and Felix Sater and Paul Manafort are in my computer is, a, is, is my own suffering. I think that that... Don't, don't duck. Okay. <laughs> I'm too close to the Lafayette Russe Twitter community that tells you the indictments are coming down any second and there's a sealed indictment for Trump. Um, and not to go Louise Mensch, but I think the, the Manafort indictment is fairly soon. Um, some people say uh, that it'll be in football season. It'll be before the Super Bowl. Wow. Um, so I'll say that. 
Jill, here's yours. Is President Trump going to finish his term? Yes. Sorry. I, I think he will. <laughs> we, um, we, we value the truth here. We, I can think take, we can take it. In some ways, a more interesting question is if he does survive, as I predict, will he run for re-election? Oh, well, that's the dread topic of the fifth year of Trumpcast, which, we, which we cannot, <laughs> which we cannot, in fact, contemplate. Here, but thank you. Um, all right. How do you feel about the fact that we seem to have very little information, official information, about Donald Trump's physical and mental health? We, um, I mean, we, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I you know, it, it's you know, we talk about norm breaking and there were a lot of things that because they had become norms like you have a doctor's exam and disclose the results it was like disclosing the tax returns everybody um you know previous candidates and presidents have done it and he just didn't and nobody could make oh him. come on you don't trust dr bornstein <laughs> uh, the greatest the, the yeah. gi doctor he, he was let's say one of the best characters he, yeah. <laughs> he was actually dr spichemin like from 30 rock now on the mental health um uh candidates have not tended to be very disclosive about that but you know of course i find that a very tricky area i mean i i, I think um, there's both because of the tendency to uh, pathologize forms of bad behavior and bad morality, and also because the definitions around a lot of these categories, like narcissism, are so uh, slippery from um, a, a clinical point of view. But, you know, on the other hand, what are we worried about? That he's going to drop dead without warning? <laughs> There is not, no. not just I mean, one we're, Trumpcast. We're, we're, guest we're worried about North Korea. Come on. Well, you mean for the mental health right. thing? Yeah. I will say that there have been, I can think of two, maybe three Trumpcast guests who, when the mic is off, said, I'm just hoping for cardiac arrest. Thanks for letting me be on the show. <laughs> They're just like Mueller, but I'm actually, my money's on a heart attack. Yeah, I didn't say that, by the way. Next question. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I guess this question is mostly um, for Mr. Bowie, but I follow you on Twitter, and I know you talk a lot about how when this is all over, most people will treat this as an abstraction, and these people will be able to like fully integrate themselves back into public life. So I guess I was wondering um, like, what suggestions you have for interventions people can take now to make sure like spice about the Emmys isn't like maybe commonplace. Right. Hmm. Really good question. So I don't necessarily know how to prevent this because it's kind of just like the rule in American politics. Like people can do and be responsible for really terrible things and not lose whatever like elite credibility they have. Um, I think to the extent that you can be prophylactic about it, it's just like journalists continuously saying that like this, you know, this person who did X, Y, and Z uh, whenever they they enter the news. But I, I honestly, I honestly have no idea how one uh, prevents this. This is kind of just like my, you know, I've like resigned myself to um, four or eight years from now, or, you know, really like 10 or 12 years from now, seeing kind of a mass forgetting about like the Trump era and sort of a mass kind of, oh, this was an accident, right? We didn't, no one meant for this to happen. Yeah, I, I just, I just, I don't know how one prevents that. Like I, 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 
I can complain about it constantly in my writing if and when it happens, but um, the the drive to want to uh, Jacob said that we we, well, we tend to want to pathologize bad behavior, but I think there's sort of a similar kind of we want we want people to be normal. We want people to not be so transgressive, and so I think the Spicer thing is a really good example that that drive to want people to be normal uh, is so strong that someone like Sean Spicer, who spent like seven months lying, I mean, just straight up lying to the public about the most trivial things, can then be invited onto the Emmys to you know yuck it up with celebrities because we just want to think that like he's just a normal guy. You know, or Corey Lewandowski yeah. can or be a Corey fellow at Harvard. Right, yeah. right. Well, I think the Emmys' feet were held to the fire very well by that crazy microblogging platform, Twitter. And, you know, LeBron James did it quickly today. He has 500,000 retweets right now. And also, Twitter has, for a seemingly ADD platform, a long attention span for stories like Trump Russia, obviously, um, for Charlottesville, for other things. And you probably know that there's a, you know, among all the many tropes on Twitter, one of them is this hasn't aged well, you know, where people like revive a tweet. Um, and it'll be a tweet from the New York Times. It'll be a tweet from one of Trump's old tweets, which usually have aged well because he's quite consistent. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, I think Twitter, like I always give it one cheer for Twitter, like has done a pretty amazing job. And in particular, I think the threaders have done an amazing job. I mean, the, on things like the Sean Spicer thing, and there's other examples. Scaramucci now has his own media thing that he's pushing. It was just the like, yeah, no. I mean, the second he appeared on the screen, there were like screenshots of him, and it was just like, we're not doing this. Fights the and that was home. Emmys. That was the Emmys making a stupid tone-deaf decision. They are the mainstream media. They're the networks. And, um, and Twitter, the, you know formerly maligned, much maligned side rabble world saying, like, we, we're not, no, we're not taking that. So uh, congressional Republicans, they continue to win. And I think a big part of that is because they cheat. And just a few examples include gerrymandering. They stole Obama's Supreme Court uh, nomination. Uh, they changed the Senate rules, going nuclear, uh, voter ID suppression, things like that. What I'm wondering is, how do Democrats start winning again? Do we start playing dirty politics like them? And if we do that, so, so I see politics as an extension of your morality. If, we, if the Democrats do start playing dirty politics, would we win? And if we did, would we be the same party? Maybe Jamel wants to say, I mean, I think it's a great question. It's also a question that I feel like people have been asking since I've been politically conscious. Mm. That is, you know, should... Democrats descend to the level of Republicans. So Democrats, Republicans do not have the belief that Democrats exist on a higher moral plane and refuse to do the things they do to it. But Democrats very broadly do have that belief. I think trying to be a little objective about it, and I try to think of myself, I'm a liberal, but I don't tend to think of myself as a partisan Democrat because I'm not involved in partisan politics at that level. I think Democrats clearly have a much greater reluctance to engage in a whole range of hardball tactics. And I think at the core, they're very conflicted about it. They don't like losing. They want to win, but they're not 
they're not as comfortable with doing the kinds of things to get elected that many, not all, Republicans are willing to do. And I don't, I don't see that. I don't see there being an answer to that question. And I don't see the dilemma going away. We had yeah. a show that completely threw me. We had this Republican operative named Mark Ross who worked for Sarah Palin. And I started talking to him about McConnell. And he was like, yeah, he's a first-rate obstructionist. Like, he's Team McConnell. <laughs> and then I said, what, I mean, what could you possibly mean? He just seems like the Merrick Garland torpedoing seems just diabolical. All his, you know, and he said, but do you remember Harry Reid? That guy was cloak and dagger. That guy was, you know, his tactics were nefarious. That's cheating. And, you know, it is that thing. Everybody thinks the other guy's cheating. Like, you juice it so cheap because you think everybody else is cheating. Harry Reid was a knife fighter. I mean, he <laughs> was. I mean, yeah. But, right, but, but he's, he was, was our guy. Democrats like to have yeah. him around yeah. their but side. I mean, right. there, there, there is, like, actual, like, empirical... I mean, we wouldn't know about the, Ru- the Russia thing. We wouldn't have known anything before the election but for Harry Reid writing that letter. Yeah, so, yeah. That, that, yeah, I mean that that does seem like like a bit of a like a like a category error because like there is there's like empirical evidence to suggest that you know the Republican Party has become an ideological outlier that in its behavior in its willingness to violate norms its willingness to sort of uh, demolish uh, uh, institutions within American government that it's it's unique in the 20th century um, and I I mean. If I were offering advice to Democrats, I, I'm sort of at the belief that the only way to stop norms violation is to actually violate the norm too, and to and to kind of essentially demonstrate that um, we're taking this seriously enough that we're going to play the same game. I, I see it. So if I I didn't I I, I was not a, the kind of kid who got in the fights. Uh, it's shocking. Um, <laughs> But like, they didn't have Twitter in those days. Yeah. <laughs> but if if I were I, I I know my father well enough that if I were the kind of kid to get into fights or to even get like bullied, his response would be, "Well, did you punch back?" And that the choice not to punch back, it's unfair that it essentially marks you as a target. But it marks you as a target. And I think in the same way that uh, punching back can kind of show that you recognize what's going on here and you're going to, to push against it, Democrats engaging in their own kind of norms violation um, would do the same. I think an example of this, to go to Merrick Garland, is I, what, what I think President Obama should have done as his term came to a close was issue a recess appointment of Merrick yeah, Garland. I, I agree. That would, have been a, that would have been a norms violation, right? Like, that is, that is, that is using the recess appointment for a, a cause that it was not... It was not meant to do that. But the Senate isn't supposed to work like that. Advice and consent does not actually mean that you can simply deny entirely a president's prerogative, constitutional prerogative, to fill the court. And so the idea there is you're, you're actually you're enforcing the actual norm. Presidents have a prerogative to have their nominees get a hearing by breaking kind of the subordinate norm. And I think that is a step Democrats But don't you think the reason he didn't isn't from a lack of willing to fight dirty, but again, because he thought, like everyone else, Hillary Clinton is going to be president, so I don't need to do that. I don't need to make the recess the point. I mean, if, yeah. if, if you thought yeah. that, that was a bad take. <laughs> but, <laughs> I think, I think it, is, it is what he thought. Let's go very quickly get two more questions. These are great questions, so we're greedy for more. Um, thanks yeah. for right. just clearing out a lot of foggy waters for us over... Mm-hmm. 
a long time. We all appreciate what you guys do. So thank, thank you. you. Um, my question is about Steve Bannon. Um, he's fired, let go, quit, etc. But we all know that Trump pulls in the same people over and over again. He's like dirty laundry water. He just keeps, you know, reusing the same awful ideas and people. And I'm wondering, who do you think that he has fired from his multitude of firings while he was in the White House? Do you think that any of those people, like Steve Bannon, might be coming back? Because, like, he's been really quiet, and it's like a toddler. Like, they're too quiet, and you start to worry. Yeah, well, he, uh, remember, you he think Bannon Omarosa? is being quiet? Yeah, I think exactly. You're gonna the Omarosa he, thing. No, I, 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 dis, I yeah. disagree <laughs> no, profoundly but you, but because I think we're going to be hearing an amazing amount about Steve Bannon in the week coming because he's going to be credited with electing the totally out of his mind Senate candidate in Alabama, Judge Moore, yeah. uh, I, I think is going to beat Strange. And Bannon is going to be down in Alabama, like, taking victory laps. But I, I think so. what you were getting at, which, is, which I agree with, is these people don't really go away. For Trump, he's calling Roger Stone on the phone. He's calling, you know, I guess he's he maybe not calling Manafort at the moment. Or because, Flynn. Because, <laughs> but, but not because he doesn't want to, but because their lawyers have told them that they can't talk to him. But, you know, he calls... Corey Lewandowski, I mean, these people are like bad pennies. They keep turning up, and maybe he has to push them. He feels like he has to push them out of the White House, or he's mad at them, and he kicks them out, but he's, he's got them on speed dial. I mean, that is typical of the way Washington works, yeah. though. It's not really unique to Donald Trump. I mean, the, the Clintons had, you know, their coterie right, of Dick scallywags yes. Yes, from exactly. Arkansas and whatnot, and you know, they, it didn't matter whether they had been banished briefly. It was the, the same kind of thing. This is true. Yeah. This is true. All right, you have the last question. Would you consider uh, political satirists or news comedians like John Oliver and Samantha Bee and Trevor Noah as journalists? Um, I absolutely consider John Oliver as a brilliant journalist. To, um <laughs> You know, when, on his show, when he picks the one subject to go long on and just keep riffing on, I mean, he, he, they, he, they're amazingly well-researched, and he knows exactly how to make something that you would never think would be broadly interesting to an HBO audience, like native advertising mm-hmm. in newspapers and magazines, really interesting. Samantha B, like they now hire, they have a fact-checking staff at Full Frontal, journalists, trained journalists. And, I you mean, know, that really began, you know, way back before you know, the 21st century with Jon Stewart, who mm-hmm. I also think mm-hmm. was, you know, he, I have no problem calling him a journalist. And by the way, with people like Preet Bharara moving into, Bharara moving into comedy, <laughs> I hope you guys are Podcasting, he's stay moving tuned. in there, I believe. Um, it's okay if Jimmy Kimmel moves to news. <laughs> All right. I want to thank Jill Abramson, Congressman Joaquin Castro, our producer, Jason DeLeon, there he is. Kirsten Holtz. I want to thank the University of Texas at Austin, the Texas Tribune Festival, and although he's not here, Evan Smith, who does an incredible job with this event, 
and for independent journalism in Texas. And I want to thank all of you for being such a fantastic audience. For Virginia Heffernan and Jamel Bowie, I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thank you for coming to Live Trumpcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.